So we'll move to our first speaker, Tony Stevens, who is Chief of Staff at Melbourne-based science PR firm, Science in Public. She's been on the Australian Science Communicators Victorian Committee for four years, and she likes planting trees. Tony. Thanks everybody. I'm not a laboratory virgin, but first time up here, so I appreciate you laughing at all my physics jokes that I know nothing about. Um, so what I want to talk about tonight is what do fridges, thermodynamics and the internet have in common? That's the story that I'm going to share with you today. One sunny morning in Glasgow ten years ago, I walked across Kellingrove Park at the University of Glasgow and through Scotland's first museum an astounding 200-year-old private collection of everything from Roman coins to stuffed animals and people's bits. It was pretty awesome. Upstairs, there was an exhibition to one of Glasgow Uni's most favourite and famous sons. His name is William Thompson, a man whose success brings together theories about energy. He's the 19th century equivalent to what Isaac Newton was to the 17th century and what Albert Einstein was in the 20th. Like Newton and Einstein, he paved the way for the next grand leap in science. And he's also arguably one of the forefathers for modern telecommunications and the internet. And for his efforts, he has a fridge named after him, but more on that later. William Thompson was born in Belfast, Ireland in 1824, where his father James taught mathematics and engineering. His mother died when he was six, and the family with seven children moved to Scotland where his father had been appointed Professor of Mathematics at Glasgow. After nearly dying from a heart attack at age nine, William started university at age 10. I learned later that that was actually not particularly rare at the time. When he was 16, his dad took him and his brother James on a trip to Germany in the hope that they would learn some German. But unfortunately for the success of this project, William had discovered a book by French mathematician Jean-Baptiste Joseph Fourier in the lead up to the trip. And the work on mathematical physics completely absorbed him and he had a deep, this had a deep influence on his future career. He had no time to learn how to speak German, but he did, however, learn French well enough to learn to read Fourier's book. Fourier's work had been criticised and attacked by British mathematicians, including Philip Kelland, who had authored a book criticising the work. And Thompson came intrigued, became intrigued with, Courier, with Fourier and committed himself to the study of this continental mathematics that was resisted by the British establishment, who was still working in the shadow of Isaac Newton. So this book, Attacking Fourier's Work, motivated Thompson to write and publish his first scientific paper at age 16 under the pseudonym PQR, Defending Fourier. And the paper was submitted by his father to the Cambridge Mathematical Journal. A second paper followed almost immediately and then a third, a more substantial paper entitled On the Uniform Motion of Heat in Homogeneous Solid Bodies. And it connected the mathematical theory of electricity with this field. In the paper, Thompson made a remarkable connection between the mathematical theories of heat conduction and electrostatics, an analogy that James Clerk Maxwell was ultimately to describe as one of the most valuable science-forming ideas. 
Thompson was one of the first to promote the idea that Fourier's mathematics, although in this case only applied to heat, could be used to study other forms of energy, whether fluids in motion or electricity flowing through a wire. Thompson attended Cambridge from 1841 through to 1845, and then in 1846, at age 22, he returned to Glasgow. But this time, he was wearing the robes of a professor and lecturing to the class in which he was a first-year student only a few years before. Despite numerous other offers over his illustrious career, Thompson was to make Glasgow his home for the next 50 years. Here, he created the first physics laboratory in Britain, and he changed the way physics was taught to undergraduate students. He was a pioneer in many different fields, including electromagnetism and thermodynamics. Together with Faraday, he was responsible for the introduction of the concept of the electromagnetic field. In thermodynamics, he brought together and then built on the work of the pioneers in that field, from Nicholas Carnot to James Joule, who the SI unit for Joule was named after, and he proposed the second law of thermodynamics. One of the most important results from his field of study was his idea about absolute zero, and the scale that this is based on is named after him. Whilst the existence of a lower level of temperature was known, Thompson is widely recognised for determining the correct value of approximately 273.15 degrees Celsius. Always the inventor, while the rest of the world was relying on gas and a candle, at the heart of Glasgow University's campus, night was banished by electric light. By Christmas of 1881, William Thompson was the first person in Glasgow and possibly the world to have his house powered with an electric light. And he developed it using the cores of telegraph cables wrapped in strips of beeswax. He invented the safety switch a few months afterwards. I don't think there was any problems in the meantime. Throughout his work, Thompson's main goal as a mathematician was actually the practical application of science. And that is how he found his inevitable fame. In the mid-1800s, before the electric light, the Atlantic Telegraph Cable Company put forward a grand proposal to connect Europe to America through a transatlantic cable. In the time, it took 10 days for a message to travel by ship from Europe over to North America. And this cable was to connect communities and continents like never before. Such a change hadn't been seen since the invention of the railways. In his 1992 book on how the, war, how the world was won, Arthur C. Clarke described the idea of the transatlantic cable as the moonshot of that era. And the technology is still very much in use today, 100 years later. You might remember in the 80s and 90s when, satellite, when, when, phone, sorry, when satellites were the next big thing, the delay on the international phone call, where you had to wait for the other person and then they could talk to you and it was all very confusing. That was because you were waiting for the signal to go up to space, to the satellite, 35,000 kilometres away, and then come back down. And now that's gone. Don't have that anymore. And that's because cables under the sea, albeit now fibre optic cables, are actually the most effective way to transmit these signals and still the most effective method of intercontinental communication. But, back to 1854. There were two main issues facing the success of the first proposed transatlantic cable. The first was how to successfully lay it on the seafloor, and the second was how to effectively transmit a signal across the 3,500 kilometres of cable. Five attempts were made to lay the cable over the nine-year period, failing for various reasons, 
from the cable breaking to the ships turning back because of bad weather. And as for the signal transmission, as early as 1816, Francis Ronalds had observed electrical signals slow when passing through an insulated wire underground, and he outlined the cause to be induction. The same effect was noticed by Latimer Clark in 1853 on cables immersed in water, and particularly on the lengthy cable at that time between England and The Hague. Michael Faraday showed that the effect was caused by the potential for an electric charge to be stored between the wire and the earth or water surrounding it. Faraday had noticed that when a charge ran through the wire, it induced a charge in the earth or the water. And that limited the speed of the interaction between those charges, limited the speed of the signal as it travelled along the cable. In 1831, Faraday described this effect, now referred to as Faraday's law of induction. In the early designs of the transatlantic cable, they had failed to analyse these effects correctly. On the 16th of October 1854, whilst caring for his unwell wife, Thompson received a letter trying to reinterest him in his work by asking his opinion of Faraday's work on the new proposed transatlantic cable. Faraday had demonstrated how the construction of a cable would limit the rate at which the messages could be sent, or in today's terms, the bandwidth. And Thompson jumped at the problem and he published a response within a month. He expressed the results in terms of the rate that the data, or the data rate that could be achieved and the economic consequences, the potential revenue of this transatlantic undertaking. And in a further analysis in 1855, he stressed the impact that the design of the cable would have on its profitability. In 1856, he presented his full results. He contended that the signalling speed through the cable would be inversely proportional to the square of the length of the cable, meaning the signal would drop off very, very quickly the longer the cable got. By this stage, though, plans for the cable were well underway. Wildman Whitehouse, an American electrician at the American Telegraph Company, had disputed Thompson's results. He said they implied that the cable project must be abandoned as being practically and commercially impossible. Pitching himself into the public eye, Thompson fought back in an article in a popular science magazine where he recommended a larger conductor and a larger cross-section of insulation. This letter caught the eye of the project's undertakers and in December 1956, Thompson was elected to the board of directors of the Atlantic Telegraph Company. He sailed on the cable-laying ship in August 1857 without White House, who was confined to land owing to illness, but the voyage ended after 600 kilometres when the cable broke. The board insisted that Tom Thompson joined the next cable-laying mission in 1858, but that attempt was abandoned due to storm. Thompson argued for another attempt, insisting that the technical problems were fixable, and he prevailed. A cable was finally installed on the 5th of August, 1858, and the first message was sent from Britain to America. It took 17 hours to transmit, but that was a vast improvement on the 10 days it used to take. <clears throat> the message, which was sent from England, of course, read, Europe and America are united by telegraphy. Glory to God in the highest, on earth, peace and goodwill towards man. Though employed as an, in an advisory capacity, Thompson had, during these voyages, developed a real engineer's instincts and a practical problem-solving under pressure. <clears throat> He took a lead in dealing with emergencies and was not afraid to lend a hand to manual work. But 
the operation of the new cable was plagued by the tensions between White House in America and Thompson back in Britain about how the cable should be operated. And Thompson's fears were realised when White House's receiving equipment proved insufficient to detect the messages that were being sent along the cable. White House believed that with enough voltage, the cable could be made to work. His repeated attempts to drive the cable with high voltages resulted in the insulation of the cable being damaged, all the while taking longer and longer to send messages. Towards the end, sending half a page of text was taking as long as a day. Hmm. Last. Rookie error. <laughs> Dramatic pause. <clears throat> In his increasing desperation, he eventually applied 2,000 volts to the cable and it short-circuited in the ocean, failing absolutely completely. And White House was fired. Thompson later said that he regretted that he'd given in to White House too easily and not challenged him with sufficient energy. But with White House gone, Thompson was appointed to the, to the committee to recommend the specifications for the new cable. The new cable was successfully laid in 1866 and it was a great success and Thompson shared a large amount of the resulting fame. He had designed a complex electrical field generator that minimised the current by resonating the cable and a sensitive light beam mirror galvanometer or receiving device for detecting the faint telegraph signals. After successfully laying the transatlantic cable, Thompson became a partner in two engineering consulting firms which played a major role in the planning and construction of other submarine cables in the frenzied era of expansion that resulted in the global network of telegraph communications, arguably a precursor to today's global network and the connection of the world via the internet. In 1892, Thompson was ennobled in recognition of his achievements, becoming Baron Kelvin of Largs in the County of Ayr, or, as he's better known today, Lord Kelvin. In 1916, nine years after his death, a clever American company decided to name a fridge in his honour, in honour of his work in determining the value of absolute zero. They called it the Kelvinator. Lord Kelvin was the first British scientist to be elevated to the House of Lords and his title refers to the river Kelvin, which flows close past his laboratory at the University of Glasgow. At the Hunterian Museum in the University of Glasgow, there's a permanent exhibition to Lord Kelvin, including many of his original papers, his instruments and other artefacts, including his smoking pipe. And this is where I visited on that sunny Glasgow day 10 years ago. And this is what I wrote, dear diary, in my diary, the day when I, after I'd visited that museum. So I knew about Kelvin, or as a degrees Kelvin, or as a physicist recently corrected me, just, just Kelvin, no degrees. And I knew about absolute zero. But how ignorant I was to the multitude of achievements made by this man. As a professor at the university, he introduced the concept of lab classes and of hands-on demonstrations. And he used his skills as an inventor to make his teaching materials. He also developed the first student labs, which facilitated his prolific outputs, but also paved the way to the modern PhD. And whilst not busy teaching, his interests included energy, motion, magnetism, light, sound, temperature, and more. Lord Kelvin's expertise covered almost all aspects of physics, and he contributed significantly to all of them. 
mostly through his inventions, like the machine he used to spin water until it got hot, and then he measured the kinetic energy in and the heat out, and finding that they were the same, he proposed the second law of thermodynamics. And then when his brother published a paper on the effect of pressure in lowering freezing point, he came up with his absolute temperature scale. He also was a strong and influential campaigner for the SI unit system of measurement. He designed the transatlantic cable and he set up the machine to record the messages it sent. This minimised the amount of energy required in the cable and the chance of it burning out, which as we learned, the first one did. And the list goes on. From ship's compasses to tide prediction to El Nino and more. This man was a genius and I am moved.